Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle 24's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. CB24 declares a John Tory win. John Just Tory. two weeks and counting in the hotly contested race to become LA's next mayor, while city leadership remains From in this crisis. moment, let's start working together. Let's start working together to build a better city. Now, if there's one thing in which we have always believed in, it's a transformative power of a good mayor. So this week we wanted to check in on a couple of mayoral races across North America, which have caught our eye. We're in Canada to discuss the results of two city elections in its largest metropolis, Toronto, and also in its capital, Ottawa. Plus, we visit the United States' second largest city as Angelinos gear up to pick their next mayor. And we're on the east coast of the US too to talk to an incumbent mayor whose city often garners the attention of those running for national office. So, who gets your vote? That's all ahead, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. We begin today in Canada, in the country's largest city of Toronto, where its long-standing incumbent mayor, John Tory, won a third consecutive term in office earlier this week. Monocle's Thomas Lewis sent us this report to sum up the mood in the city during this election cycle. I'm standing in downtown Toronto, not far away from the famous semicircular towers of the city's landmark mid-century City Hall building. But I've come to visit a city fixture that's nearby, one that for many people here has become a quietly potent symbol of the current state of the city. I'm standing next to a water fountain, one of 700 public water fountains dotted right across the city. And this one is broken and out of use. And stuck to the water fountain's pebble-stoned plinth is a little plaque, a little like those you might find fixed next to a painting on the wall of a museum or an art gallery. And the artist behind this particular work is, according to the little plaque, the city's mayor, John Tory, who's been elected to serve a third four-year term. There are scores of little artists' plaques like this right across the city at the moment, each denoting a piece of vital city infrastructure that is either broken or has been left in disrepair. These plaques are the work of a collective called Austerity TO, which has sought to highlight what they see as the managed decline of Canada's largest city during John Tory's eight years as mayor so far. And it can feel, in a more observational sense, difficult to disagree with the point they've sought to highlight through their satirical artists' plaques. Overflowing rubbish bins, unrepaired potholes, chronic delays on the city's public transport network, and just a general sense of distance, some would say disregard for the city, by those who've been elected to run it. It all feels like an increasingly entrenched part of the public mood here at the moment. And it is often the nuts and bolts of a city, whether the buses run on time, are public parks maintained and open to everyone, is the rubbish collected on schedule, that can ultimately overtake the grander, more sweeping ambitions that leaders have for their city. The problem in Toronto, for many at least, is that even that is lacking at the moment. And despite the candidacy of a number of candidates for mayor who've offered several strong ideas for the city this time around, this has been described by several commentators in the city's press 
as a status quo election, thanks to its fondness for what's been characterised as an old-fashioned style of politics and power brokerage, which means the more surprising and energising candidates for high office, which have been elected to the city halls of other Canadian cities like Calgary and Montreal over recent years, find it hard to get elected here which feels like an opportunity missed at a time when Toronto's population continues to grow. And with new strong mayor powers coming to Toronto's mayoralty, it feels like a particularly important moment for the sense of malaise in the city to come to an end and that its affairs and its potential aren't, like the water fountain I'm standing next to, left out of order. Well, it is election night here in Toronto, and I've come to watch the results at an election night watch party, which is being hosted by Spacing Magazine, which is an urban affairs magazine here in Toronto. And it has followed every single detail of this year's election campaign. And I can just see now on the TV screens behind the bar here that John Tory, Toronto's incumbent mayor, is taking to the stage. It now looks as though he has won quite decisively, despite the low turnout in this year's election, a third term in office. Well, I'm going to go to speak to some of those people who've gathered here to watch the results roll in to ask what they think about the result and about what the next four years here in Toronto might have in store. My name is Cameron McLeod. I'm the executive director of Code Red TO, a nonpartisan transit advocacy organization in Toronto. I'm Matthew Blackett. I'm the uh, publisher and creative director of Spacing. I wish Toronto had the powers of like German cities or London or, you know, they're city states essentially, like, or like city regions. And we, we should be able to govern ourselves in the way that we see other large, very vibrant, very economically prosperous cities are, are, are going. And Toronto succeeds in spite of itself. I don't know how that happens. It could be its people. But even then, I think we're just very fortunate that we are the economic center of Canada and because of that it makes us less able to fail compared to other cities but that's kind of you can only fall downwards so far that's kind of how I feel and that probably explains why how I feel about the city right now it's very conflicting because there are lots of great things to love about this city but there's a lot of things that need fixing and there's a lot of stagnation and we're in a moment of change and our city's not embracing that in any kind of way. So that feels very Toronto-like, though, in some ways. So. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, you, historically, you look at Toronto and every time big cities start to become too powerful in North America, what you end up with is a change to the structure to reduce that power. Toronto was turned into the mega city and absorbed suburban areas so that there was less voting power concentrated in the core. Then it started to get too powerful and it was time to change the number of wards to, again, provide more power to the suburbs. And all of these things, strong mayor powers, again, centered with the province, transit expansion, again, brought to the province. So those choices, they really lead us to that infantilization that you talked about and we accept it as a city. Not individually, many, many of us try to break past that, but too many of us as a group, we accept that and we say, oh, I guess this is the way it is. And that leads back to that lack of engagement that you talked about that, you know, it's like, I can't change it and I have to work three jobs and I have to get to class and I don't have any time for this. And I personally, I have time for it and I have money for it and I put that money where I need it to go. 
but each individual person is not enough, right? We have to have a higher level of engagement, otherwise we continue to stagnate. We continue with individuals that are making choices based on their voter base, their donors, and status quo, which leads us right to what you were talking about, Matt, about we can't hold on for long. We won't actually continue succeeding despite ourselves. We're slowing down a lot, and it's going to visibly reverse very soon. We have to be careful. And talking about frustrations or complaining about Toronto does feel like a fairly classic Toronto thing, I guess, in lots of different places. But the bright spots, the things that you think can be achieved, how engagement gets back over the next four years, where you think real change might come, what are those spots for you? Speaking from the the transportation angle, Toronto has dramatically changed in the last few years as to how transportation is being discussed and how it has is being structured. There's a lot of construction that's on the go, which has been very painful for small business, very just epic for some communities. But over the next year, two years, three years, there are going to be huge new transit lines that open, for example. And they are going to really reshape what's possible in certain neighborhoods and really reshape the conversation around, oh, hey, we can do that thing. We argued for 10 years about it. Turns out we can actually do it. And it's going to reshape how we talk about the next investments. And all of that is going to build up in terms of economic mobility and educational mobility inside parts of the city that desperately need more mobility. It's going to create more complexity in our transportation network. And the value there, it's you know, the, the multiplier effect of what will happen across Toronto, There's, there are real benefits there. You know, it's compound interest. It's when you invest and then you see more and more and more coming. We're right at the beginning and it's very difficult for many of us, including our leadership, to see that interest start to build. But it's going to happen, just like when we invest in other things. It's just in the past, we used to invest in a highway and we thought that was enough. Or we invested in a convention center and that was enough. That's not the way the city operates anymore. That's not the way the world operates anymore. And that's what I focus on, is those changes that I see coming, and a lot of crossing my fingers. (laughs) We've been doing spacing for almost 20 years now. We're coming up on 19 years. It's going to be 20 years next year. So I look back on when we started in 2003 and where the city was and where we are now and what has been built, whether it's transit or cycling infrastructure, whether it's green spaces, public spaces, those things. We've come a really long way. I have to remember that and, and be able to put that into perspective. But again, like things like the pandemic have made us a lot less patient. We're way more impatient for things. We've had opportunities to affect change. They're not actually happening. And in some places they are, in some places they aren't. Here I don't feel like they're happening at the speed and with the right decisions at the heart of those changes. But, you know, this is probably the first time in my, like, my 20 years of doing urbanism where I'm really unsure of where we're going. I, I don't feel as confident as I felt pre-pandemic. I don't feel as confident when I thought change was coming, when we're doing those sidewalk cafes and re-transforming our streets. Those things have been good. You mentioned that, I think, Toronto sort of succeeds despite of itself sometimes, but magazines like yours organizations like yours you know do have a lot of energy to them do have groups around them that are inspired by what you do that kind of level of sort of engagement with people asking questions of their city or like trying to push for something better 
that is quite a special thing here, isn't it? I think so. We, you go to other Canadian cities and you don't find as much engagement, I think, as you do in Toronto. That seems odd. And so there's probably two sides of that coin, I think. One is that there's people who care deeply about their city and they want to have an impact, they want to be involved, they want to have their voice heard. The flip side is that there's a government or there's something structural is not delivering. And so people have to step in and do things like that. I wish Cam didn't have to start his organization. There's no need for his organization in a city that does and plans smart transit. And there's no need for a magazine like ours about urbanism in a city that's designing dynamic public spaces and building good parks and showing leadership around around those things. So it, I think there's two sides to that. So I think we're fortunate that we have that. We have that spirit. I wish we didn't have to do it. Cameron McLeod and Matthew Blackett there, looking ahead to the next few years from the city following this year's mayoral and council elections. We will return to Canada shortly, but before we do, we head to the west coast of the United States. Stay with us. Los Angeles incumbent mayor Eric Garcetti might be readying to embrace his new post as the US ambassador to India, Back in his home city, one of the tightest mayoral races in recent years is unfolding. In just under two weeks, Angelinos will have a new mayor for the first time in nearly a decade. So, who are the candidates and what are the key issues shaping up the campaign? Monocle's US editor, Christopher Lord, sent us this dispatch from Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a powerhouse of culture and economy the biggest city in America's richest state. Yet its mayors have typically lacked some teeth. The city's charter forbids the mayor from wielding some of the levers of power that one finds in city halls in New York or Chicago. They set the budget, they hire and fire officials, but the role has typically been about representing Los Angeles on the world stage and occasionally snagging the ear of Washington when needed. Just two weeks and counting in the hotly contested race to become LA's next mayor, while city leadership remains in crisis. This year, it's totally different. Residents are angry. They're looking to the mayoralty for answers, having wearied of a city council beset by infighting and scandal. The city encapsulates and, in true LA fashion, exaggerates many of the problems faced by urban centres up and down the United States. A rise in violent crime, increasingly dangerous roads, but especially homelessness. The issue on which this mayoral race will be won and lost come November 8th. There are 40,000 people sleeping rough on the streets of Los Angeles, and the two candidates are squaring up with big plans and big promises about how they'll get it under control. On one side of the ring is Karen Bass, a Washington insider and head of the Black Congressional Caucus. She says she will get over 17,000 people indoors in her first year by expanding the solutions already out there and requisitioning more hotel rooms, as happened in COVID, for the effort. So we have to feel, figure out how, as a community, that we take responsibility for it all over town. We can't just... Her opponent is Rick Caruso, a mall mogul who's spent vast amounts of money on his campaign. He's vowed to build 300,000 interim beds in the first 300 days in office. That includes 15,000 tiny homes, the 8 by 8 foot structures that have proliferated across LA in recent years. And we need to give people hope. We need to give people the ability to have their share of the American dream. When you have well, homelessness is just one manifestation of several long-standing absences. The lack of affordable housing, a social safety net, 
and mental health care for all. No amount of tiny homes or hotel rooms can plug those gaps. There's a need for long-term thinking. But if LA's next mayor can at least begin to chart a course out of this crisis, then it may inspire other cities. Mayoral races can sometimes seem in the weeds of national politics, but America, more than usual, is keeping an eye on this one. Monocle's US editor Chris Lord there, and the Los Angeles mayoral vote takes place on the 8th of November. Back to Canada now, and to the capital city of Ottawa, which has elected a new mayor, the author and former television journalist Mark Sutcliffe. His win came as something of a surprise. The disruption brought to Ottawa by the convoy of truckers and other anti-vax protesters at the beginning of the year had led many voters, and indeed the opinion polls, to suggest that a more dramatic and progressive politician was going to come to Ottawa City Hall. Well, to profile Ottawa's new mayor, Monocle's Thomas Lewis spoke to Chelsea Nash, deputy editor of the Hill Times newspaper in Ottawa, and also to Marco Vigliotti, city editor at the Ottawa Citizen newspaper, who joined him from the Canadian capital. Well, on Monday, Ottawa elected Mark Sutcliffe to be their new mayor in a race against Catherine McKenney, who was one of the mayoral candidates. Sutcliffe won with 51.4, I think, percent of the vote and sort of a, a decisive victory there. He's a candidate who campaigned on issues of safety, issues of road and transit improvement and not defunding the police, basically. What a beautiful night in Ottawa. I am feeling a lot of emotions right now. Humility, excitement, joy, a lot of relief. But most of all, I am feeling incredible gratitude. He's a bit of an interesting character around town. He's someone who's visible in the media. He's worked for a citizen, for example. He started a business publication called the Ottawa Business Journal. So he's definitely uh, someone who's well-known. He used to host a radio show on CFRA, one of our local uh, talk news stations. But that being said, the profile he had wasn't as well-known as maybe his background or his resume might imply. I don't think everyone in Ottawa instantly knew who Mark Sutcliffe was. Whereas Catherine McKinney, on the other hand, had a lot of attention and, you know, for their role in the Freedom Convoy, in a very kind of visible role, voicing the opposition and frustration of the residents they represented on the city council. So, you know, McKinney almost had a national profile, whereas Sutcliffe, who's been around for so long, who's held some pretty you know prominent positions in Ottawa, maybe didn't have that uh, same kind of reach. So it's kind of an interesting kind of contrast. And he entered the race so late, he was able to make up such ground on McKinney, who was relatively well-established, who I think people were very familiar with across the city, especially in light of the convoy. Ottawa's voter turnout this time around was around 44%, which was the highest it's been since 2010, but is also, I think, quite low. It doesn't look as bad when you look at other major cities in Ontario. I think we had one of the highest voter turnouts in this municipal election. Mark Sutcliffe did a really good job of playing to Ottawa's suburbs, and there are quite a few of them, and they are quite sprawling. And 
he did a good job of responding to Catherine McKenney's campaign in a way that framed them as a candidate for urban voters, for the urban center versus a candidate for all of Ottawa. And I think that was one note that Sutcliffe hit repeatedly during his campaign was, I'm here for all of Ottawa. You know, he managed to make an issue of bike lanes into sort of a seemingly decisive factor where Catherine McKenney wanted to basically condense a a plan to create a bunch of bike lanes in the city into a four-year plan with a hefty price tag of $250 million. And I think that issue really did divide urban and suburban voters because I think a lot of suburban voters would say that's an issue that's for people who live in urban Ottawa. People who live in the suburbs are dependent on cars to get around. They're not going to be able to use those bike lanes, but I guess the perception is they'd be paying for it with their taxes. Meanwhile, Sutcliffe was also intent on keeping taxes low and repairing roads and and improving transit for those suburban voters looking to commute into the city. From this moment, from this moment, let's start working together. Let's start working together to build a better city for everyone. As the results came in, one thing that I kept thinking of was how we heard in the run-up that this was a change election. And I mean, I guess it was a change election since so many councillors were leaving, but it felt like we had a change election somehow without any change. And you had Mark Sutcliffe running a campaign without a platform. It seems like in places like Vancouver, which recently elected a center-right mayor who ran strong on issues like crime, in Ottawa, when center-right candidates or centrist candidates win, they almost do it in absence of a platform, almost saying, I want to take politics out of the question. And I think that's something that really appeals to suburban voters in that we don't need to do anything out of the box here. We need to focus on these core issues, and they're always identified as roads and improving transit. Crime is mentioned a bit. I don't think it gained that much traction in the past vote, but it's almost mentioned in opposition to movements like, you know, defunding the police. That's something that, you know, is an accusation that was lobbed at Catherine McKinney, although they've never voiced any support for that. So I think that urban-suburban line, you have a part of Ottawa that isn't very big, but you belong to the old city of Ottawa that is, you know, dense, well-connected, where they do want bike lanes, where there's support for being bolder with, you know, doing something to make the city more comparable to cities like Toronto to have, you know, this kind of transit, biking and other kind of uh, amenities that you would see in cities bigger than Ottawa or cities that the same size as Ottawa. And in the burbs, the message is much different. The messaging is we have to ensure that our taxes are low, our priorities ensuring that rural roads are better connected to the rest of the city. And those are the things that really kind of appeal to that. So you have part of the city that basically wants to operate as a city and the rest of the city, which is the burbs, which represent a bigger share of the population, definitely a bigger area wide. And they have totally different priorities. And at the beginning of the year, the eyes of the world were on Ottawa when the so-called Freedom Convoy came to town, caused untold disruption for residents of Canada's capital city. I just wonder how long-lasting and lingering the effects of that for people who live in the city have been and how those emotions, I suppose, played in to this campaign. You described, Marco, this as a change election, perhaps without much change. But do you think that the experience of the blockades of Ottawa at the start of this year, do you think that they did change people's views about what the city should be there to do for them? Well, I think I'm going to have a vastly different answer than Chelsea, who is living centrally, right? 
I moderated a debate out in the, a very suburban ward here, and it was uniform amongst all four candidates. And the burbs in, in Ottawa are, I think, very comparable to the suburbs of Toronto in that, you know, they're very diverse. You have a lot of new Canadians here. You have a very kind of big, especially in South Ottawa, you have a strong you know, South Asian population, the strong Arab community here. And, you know, the candidates kind of represented that. Yet all of them were very clear on, we need more police officers, not less. The whole convoy pointed to weak leadership at City Hall, but also within the police force. And there seems to be this frustration that they simply weren't doing their jobs well. And how much that kind of played into the entire campaign in the suburbs, I don't think it really did. I think people thought the previous police leadership was ineffective. Peter Slowly, who was in that position, came in as a change candidate, saying that Ottawa Police Force needs to do some more community policing. That was his entire focus. And when the convoy came to town, I think people in the burbs just said, why don't you basically start removing these people? Why don't we take a more, you know, kind of proactive approach? And they were kind of dismayed that it didn't happen. That being said, I think it didn't really kind of linger that much for voters here. You know, they weren't involved with it. They didn't have to hear the honking. They didn't have to deal with the protesters vandalizing property, trying to harass and intimidate residents. So they were really removed from it. And as much as, you know, I think Catherine McKinney was able to improve their image and grow a national profile because of how, you know, kind of forceful uh, they were in denouncing the occupation and standing in solidarity with residents, I don't think it really mattered. It had much of an effect out here. I think people were concerned, obviously people were disappointed and embarrassed, but I don't know if it really played that much of a role. I think some of the issues that play a big role in the suburbs, despite the fact that they've oversized influence, is always the sense that city hall's making decisions for people downtown. Not to say there wasn't a core sympathy of what was going on, but there was a sense of we're forgotten, we're ignored. And that was something I heard more consistently from candidates than any talk of the convoy. I do think that there was a divide. I think for people living in central Ottawa, the Freedom Convoy was very much a present issue. And I think that Catherine McKenney, I mean, they did get 38% of the vote, which is substantial for a progressive you know, more left-leaning candidate who's aligned with the NDP, that's something that is not an insignificant number. So I think that the reason for that support was certainly because of their presence at the Freedom Convoy and in directly supporting and engaging with their constituents at the time in Somerset Ward, which was one of the wards most heavily impacted by the convoy. So I think that that's sort of where you've got that divide again. It wasn't an issue in the suburbs. It was an issue for people living downtown, especially because we've got this commission looking into what happened with the convoy. And you've got, you know, city councillors and police chiefs and, and leaders sort of exhuming and going back over exactly what happened during the convoy. It is in people's minds again. But I think the people who are paying attention to that are the people who were living through it and who were most affected. So I do think that it's downtown and I guess more urban ridings because it's not all strictly downtown. I mean, I live in the west end of the city, but still central Ottawa. And people who were living in central Ottawa had the concern of the Freedom Convoy and looked to Catherine McKenney and I think appreciated their commitment to that. And it allowed them to understand that candidate in a way that maybe they wouldn't have if that candidate wasn't able to go and, and be present at that Freedom Convoy versus suburban voters, I think, being more interested in bike lanes, <laughs> you know, so it's these two very 
different priorities for different so groups of people geographically. It's tough and it's, it's disappointing, but, but we're going to move forward. We are. We owe that to the thousands of voters who put their faith in our campaign tonight. So tonight, we're going to share some drinks. They're not on me, though. <laughs> I'm unemployed. <laughs> I think a lot of people who were throwing their support behind McKenney ended up being quite disappointed because it did feel like Ottawa had a chance to be something different than it has been for the last 12 years under Mayor Jim Watson with a candidate who who had big ideas and big plans. And I think for voters who, who wanted to go in that direction and wanted to see the city chart a new path, I think it, it was a disappointment and they felt as though, okay, well, here we are, Ottawa, famously known as being, you know, the city who forgot fun. And we're back to, I guess, the status quo. And I think there were some people that were very inspired by McKenney's campaign. I think it was a campaign that was very different from what we've seen in mayoral races in the past. And I think that, yeah, there was a great deal of disappointment, especially in the city centre the next day. But at the same time, I don't think that that movement or, or the level of support that McKenney had is going to go away, so we'll see what happens in the next election. Chelsea Nash and Marco Vigliotti there in conversation with Thomas Lewis. Finally today, we head back to the US to visit the Pennsylvania city of Wilkes-Barre. With a population of only around 50,000 people, the centre gets big attention from the national candidates when putting in their bid for the White House. Monocle's Chris Chermack sent us this report on what US presidents might be able to learn from the sort of collaborative approach shown by local leaders in Wilkes-Barre and beyond. Not every town in the United States can claim to have welcomed a president and former president in the space of just one week. But then Wilkesbury is different. The seat of Luzerne County in northern Pennsylvania has long been a magnet for candidates seeking higher office. Wilkesbury is a city of about 50,000 people, and we are the county seat in Luzerne County, PA. County is very important for upcoming elections because uh, we found in the past that if you win Luzerne County, you have a pretty good shot at winning the state. This is Wilkesbury's mayor, George Brown. Though he's a Democrat, Mayor Brown is soft-spoken and not particularly partisan. On the day of our interview, he's organizing a meeting with a half-dozen other mayors from surrounding cities. It's an initiative that he started two years ago to sort of troubleshoot problems, pool resources and influence. And yet, Mayor Brown does light up when he starts talking about the special visitor that he had back in August. I was asked, do you want to meet Mr. President Biden on the tarmac at the airport? Absolutely, I'd love to, which we did. Uh, would you like to ride in the motorcade? I really would like to ride in the motorcade, which we did. And would you like to introduce President Biden before he spoke? Now, it's my honor to introduce to you President Joe Biden. It was just an amazing day. 
It really was because it's a once in a lifetime honor that I was given. Mr. Biden was here, he was in Scranton back in October, so I met with him twice in a year's time, October and then just recently when he came to Wilkes-Barre. So that was amazing. Mr. Mayor, thank you. Now, you'll have to forgive Mayor Brown if he doesn't sound quite as excited by the other visitor his city had that very same week of Joe Biden. Yes, Mr. Trump was here also. He pulled a large crowd. We take you live now to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, where former President Donald Trump is holding a rally in support of U.S. Senate candidate Dr. Mehmet Oz and gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano. This is live coverage on C-SPAN. We've had you know, people running for Senate, running for U.S. Congress, people running for governor. So it's very important that they come here, they see the people, they relate to the people, they talk to the people, and let the people know what their values are and how they're going to help the people that they're speaking to. And I think that's very important. This election is a referendum on skyrocketing inflation, rampant crime, soaring murders, crushing gas prices, millions and millions of illegal aliens pouring across our border, race and gender indoctrination, perverting our schools, and above all this election is a referendum on the corruption and extremism of Joe Biden and the radical Democrat Party. Okay, so Wilkes-Barre's blue-collar swing state voters are a major prize for national candidates. There's this feeling that if you can do well here, you can do well anywhere. But what about the reverse? What do voters from a place like Wilkes-Barre actually want from the federal government all the way in Washington, D.C.? Jobs. Always. Always a guy. Always. Always. This is Bill O'Boyle. He's a writer and columnist for the Times Leader newspaper in Wilkes-Barre. O'Boyle says Donald Trump's message resonated here, in a place that has suffered from manufacturing jobs going overseas. Trump endeared himself because he had all the issues that resonated with middle America. America first. Make America great again. Those catchphrases were just right up the alley of all these people. O'Boyle says that Trump's popularity has waned since his presidency. That rally he held in Wilkes-Barre back in August drew around 7,000 people, but there were empty seats in the arena, unthinkable in 2016 or even 2020. There's a feeling here that really neither party has delivered on its promises to revive Wilkes-Barre or the surrounding areas. The fact that an egotistical, vulgar, irreverent billionaire has become the standard bearer for middle America is baffling to me. It's baffling. I don't know how that happened. I mean, I went to all the rallies. I saw them. I saw people there that I've known for all my life, Democrats, fighting for Trump hats and Trump banners and shirts and everything else. Tired of it. They don't think the Democratic Party represents their beliefs or their wants anymore. They fail to see what is important to middle America, to voters, that they're tired of the way things were for so long. Wilkesbury Mayor Brown shirks at the suggestion that his party doesn't really represent the needs of the people. He points to the $37 million in federal aid stimulus money that Wilkesbury got after the pandemic from the Biden administration. Mayor Brown says he's handed some of that money directly to citizens in the form of stimulus checks. 
but he's also used it for things like new equipment and cruisers for the local police force and firefighters, and to attract new businesses to the area. But more broadly, he rejects some of the stereotypes that come with the more polarizing side of the national attention. That notion that his city is still some dirty coal mining town in need of saving. That was 50, 60 years ago. I mean, that's when I was a kid. You know, that's not the way Wilkes-Barre is today. Wilkes-Barre is dynamics. We're putting 5G networks through the city. We're putting other things through here. We have several businesses. They're national headquarters in Wilkes-Barre now. So Wilkes-Barre's changed. And it's changing because you can't stagnate and be in the past. you got to be in the future. you got to look at what the future needs. You know, not just for Wilkes-Barre, but for this area, the county, the state. So we're addressing that. I mean, we're doing things to promote the future away from the old stigma of a dirty old coal mine town. This is not a dirty old coal mine town. This is a vibrant, clean town that is looking at new entrepreneurs coming in. We have three colleges downtown. But if things have picked up in Wilkesbury in recent years, O'Boyle of the Times Leader credits more of a cooperative regional approach even as much of the country has descended into partisan bickering. We're seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. I don't think it's a train, but I think that we're starting to see some a regional approach to economic development. Rather than people trying to fight each other, like, oh, we want this in Luzerne County. No, it's going to be in Lackawanna County. No, it's going to be in Lehigh County. No. Now they're saying, if we can get it anywhere within driving distance of everybody, let's bring it in. You know, let's do it. And not just, you know, menial jobs, you know, driving a forklift or stocking shelves or this or that or picking orders and putting them on a truck. Real jobs that our family's sustaining that are decent. We're starting to see more of that. And I think the reason for that is not to be credited to any candidate or any office holder. I think it's because we've all of a sudden adopted this regional approach to economic development. A case in point is shortly after our interview. Mayor Brown welcomes a half-dozen other mayors from surrounding towns into his office at City Hall as part of this cooperation initiative. My name's Kevin Coughlin. I'm the mayor of Manicook City. My name's Mayor Frank Coughlin, Mayor of Puma Pearl, and we are brothers. <laughs> Brian Thomas, I'm the mayor of 44. Michael A. Lombardo, mayor, City of Pittston. I ask some of the mayors what their key biggest concerns are, where they need to work together most. Light in the cities, then the towns. It's hard to find good police. All the towns are recruiting police. We're all very active recruiting police. And safety is the most important thing to anybody. Looking at how we can work together to improve the overall region. I mean, we've got a few million people that live when you combine us all together. And I think that's important for us to work together to for the betterment of the region, not just for our individual communities. If you look at you know the last couple of years, we're in such a polarized political environment. When you sit here at the table with us, it doesn't matter what party you are. Our issues are real issues that we face every day. And I think there's some lessons to be learned. This is where the rubber meets the road with local government. Spend some time with these small town mayors and you do begin to realize this is one haven where politics in the United States is still more like it used to be. Cooperative and focused on problem solving. Perhaps that's a message that the many national visitors stopping by Wilkesbury in recent weeks should take back to Washington with them as well. For Monocle, in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, I'm Chris Chermack.
Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. Today's programme was produced by Carlos Ribello and David Stevens. David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, here's Wiki with Mare. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. But the mayor's